This is Yudah Kohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you are listening to the Next Stage Podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Lizzie Uziel. Hi. And uh, a good friend of the show, a good friend of the Vision Movement, Inon Dan Kahati. Nice to meet you. <laughs> nice to be here in my house. <laughs> uh, we, we are sitting here in Inon's home, and one of the main reasons we're having this conversation, the truth is, uh, Inon has been on the show before, in, in the very early days of the Next Stage podcast. Uh, but the reason we're having him on again is because he's about to release a book called Shema Yishmael. Yes, indeed, sir. Yes, indeed. It's so good. why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about what is, first of all, the title, Shema Ishmael, uh, Listen Ishmael, uh, and uh, and what the book's about. And also how you wrote this book, meaning the process of writing this book. That's a big story. Uh, yeah. So regarding your first question, Shema Ishmael is, uh, like you said, it, it's what, uh, what I want to say in this book is actually something that more than I want us to listen, I want them to listen. But I think it's Shema Ishmael that we really need to identify them as Ishmael, but we also need to identify ourselves as Yitzhak. But when you say them, you mean the Palestinians, you mean the Islamic world, you mean... All the... of it, yeah. I think it's mostly a conversation with the Muslim world, mm-hmm. through mm-hmm. the Palestinians. Mm-hmm. Uh, and okay. I think that the Palestinians are, we'll get, we'll get to that later, but the Palestinians are like a stick in the hand of the Kadosh Baruch Hu to take us back to our essence. That's uh, the way I see the role over here. And um, and they need to listen, but also Shema Ishmael, I realize, and this is something very important, that there's a way that Ishmael can listen. And it doesn't come from the Hasbara talk. It doesn't come necessarily from rational conversation. It comes from the conversation of Emunah. And, and stories. Faith, and stories, mm-hmm. but especially faith. and embedding Hashem in this conversation and it's super important point to point out. Mm-hmm. So just for listeners who don't know, uh, Yinon and I first met roughly a decade ago, right? We first met about a Almost decade ago. Almost 10 years. Yeah. Just in the very beginning of my path, I joined path with you. Right. I, I remember um, maybe you you had seen a video of mine or something. Yes, yes, yes. I saw a video of you that was super inspiring for me. Where this was the settler driving in the car, speaking about Palestinians as being part of the Jewish deep story, and speaking about our story that we have, that every rock, every tree, every hill had something within our story as a people. But you didn't disconnect it from the Palestinians, and I super inspired from it. All right, so first of all, in general, is that something you experience a lot, that most Jews who are connected to their own story and deeply rooted in our land and our narrative can't help but disconnect the Palestinians? Yes, unfortunately. That's something major I see, and I see it especially in demonstration in Sheikh Jarrah or Shimon Tzadik. This is a place where I see Jews that have strong national religious identity that tend to erase almost completely the universalist Jewish side of theirs. But on the other hand, we have the same process there with the other side, with the Jewish people from the left, that they embed so much universalism with them, but they erase the national and the religious story. Or they just don't know it. Meaning meaning in many cases, a lot of the people 
a lot of the Jews here and abroad who are fighting for the Palestinian cause are for the most part disconnected, like not rooted in the Jewish story, don't know it. Uh, and I would say it's not only true for like Israelis who just never got that education. I see it with Jews who have 12 years of modern Orthodox Jewish education and whose parents are members of APAC and who went through like Stand With Us training, meaning people who are products of the pro-Israel modern Orthodox Jewish institutions in the United States, like having no real connection to the Jewish story because it's for them, unfortunately, not a real story. It hasn't been given to them as a real story in the way that the Palestinian story is a real story. And I think that is, is something that needs to change. And also this thing you touched upon, this idea of, the, the, I think it's, it's revolutionary, uh, not just because I'm part of it, but I think it is revolutionary that you have Jews who can be like deeply rooted to our own story and connected to our own story and loyal to our own story in a way that we're living a life of driving that story forward constantly, yet are able to see the Palestinian not as an obstacle, not as a threat, not necessarily as an enemy, but to fit them into that story in a way that's actually productive and helps us both achieve our aspirations. Uh, and, and since we met, we've, we, we both were for a long time involved in peace work. We were both involved in, in bringing Jews and Palestinians together. And I know that Lizzie also did some work with both of us on this front. So, you know, you're part of this conversation too. Of course. Um, you know, it, it's interesting that you mentioned the like demonstrations in Sheikh Jarrah. I have come with you to a couple of those and definitely some of the most interesting conversations about, I think, themes that you probably touch on in your book, things to do with the Jewish state, democracy, Jewish identity, and, and defining all of these things. Some of the most interesting conversations I've had with people have happened at, at these demonstrations. So I'm curious how um, your piecework colored what the content of your book is. Um, look, my book, and yes, before that, the question, the process of writing this book basically began the first post that I made that eventually led me to meet John, my first Palestinian friend, who was still my friend and my brother. And it's a process of taking a lot of bits of insights and opinions, testing them on the ground with conversations, with activism, and it's actually a 10, 10 year long work of this book. Work on this book was a 10 year, 10 year long uh, experience of uh, taking a lot of insights and a lot of uh, notions from various encounters that I had, whether through dialogues or activism, answering, finding questions to a lot of answers, uh, finding answers to a lot of questions that uh, I ask myself, and some of them I also have the uh, great blessings to get came from you inspiration of uh, what is the Jewish story or what is the Jewish political chapter map, which I think is super important question to clarify between ourselves. Mm. We, we could link to that article in the show notes. Yeah. yeah. And I appreciate so much that you as an Israeli connect because sometimes, I don't know, from the outside perspective, it might seem that a lot of people here in the vision movement, we're North Americans, we come in with all these ideas and, you know. We're all in. We're all in. Yes, um, but it might seem like maybe we're out of touch or something with the Israeli feeling at the moment. So definitely hearing your perspective as like a native born Israeli and that you connect so much with this tribal political map theory um, 
for me, really reinforces how necessary it is to really like put this out there for the Israeli public and the general Jewish people together out there. It's uh, It's uh, very important. But uh, regarding my book, I uh, I wrote it in one of the farms in uh, southern Judea, making brainstorms with a very dear friend of ours. I don't know if he would like us to mention him because he likes to remain incognito. He was on the show a couple of episodes ago. Right, that's great because he gives he gives gave gives a lot of uh, insights and a lot of depth. To a lot of points that I have. Gavriel Reis. Gavriel Reis. Gavriel Reis. There's no more and more kabod ba But anyway, the book is going to be a story, dialogues, real dialogues. Some of them was in front of camera even, and also answers to a lot of questions. And there's something I want to point out regarding Sheikh Jarrah. That thing was for me like a laboratory to make experiments on human beings about politics. To test ideas on the left, on the right, on Palestinians living there, on the Jews. But you know, one thing I saw is that the left is almost without any deep Jewish national and religious aspects. I'm going to make a request, and I'm only making this request because we already brought up the tribal political map, uh-huh. and because everybody here seems to buy in that this is the right way to talk about Israeli politics. So let's try talking about this experience at this laboratory, a political laboratory of Sheikh Jarrah, but not using the Western political framings. But actually, the use, yeah, let's actually use great, the tribes. Great. So anyway, and I love that you brought it up. Anyway, the forces of Yosef in Sheikh Jarrah and its extreme expression there, which is done, they radiate our identity on the Palestinians, and therefore the Palestinians see us. It's colonizers, it's people that don't really belong to this place. Because they radiate on them that Jews should not be there, should not be in East Jerusalem at all, not to mention Judea and Samaria. And what is being created there is a dynamics that the good Jews, quote unquote, are the Jews who are weak, the Jews who are uncomfortable with power. The Jews are willing to give up their story. They give up that connected to the story, and on the other hand, the forces of Yehuda, that is being represented there by Shimon and Levi, actually. More Shimon, probably. More Shimon. They're erasing the Palestinian story over there without realizing that without including the Palestinians this way or the other in their story, they will not be able to fulfill their own aspirations. Mm. And why do I say that? Because if I look at the Torah on the level of the Pshat, mm-hmm. okay? I'm not saying that you can understand the whole Torah just by the Pshat, but that's a one important, you know, first step. We have obligation, not a right, obligation to inherit this land and also to provide to the non-Jews, to the girl, mm-hmm. to be part of our system. But we need to rule over here. We have a commitment to rule over here. We have an obligation to possess the land. So how we can rule all over here without including the non-Jews, especially in the places in the heart of our story, Bethlehem, Ramallah, Shechem, the refugee camps. So if the Jews that should sit with these Palestinians are erasing them, then we cannot fulfill also, and that's the paradox. 
Very good. You know, I actually, there's a difference in terms of the way that like the West uses the word possess, ownership, all of these things versus the way that the Hebrews use that word. And when we say possess or own, we actually imply a responsibility. Mm -hmm. So you have an obligation to your property. You have an obligation to your wife. You have an obligation to your animals. It It's not something that you come in and you basically get to decide willy-nilly, what, do whatever you want with it. You actually have specific things you are ordered to provide for them. And so the land and all of its inhabitants are included in that. Um, and I feel like maybe, you know, we're good at applying these things to things like our own individual property rights or our livestock or our families. But in terms of the land, I don't know that as a nation, we've fully gotten to that place where we understand that responsibility that we have to take care of all of the inhabitants. And that's what you're saying about Shimon, how they're not fully seeing that full view of what their obligation to this land really is. And I think that the, one of the main things that I realized, especially in the last years, is that the more we separate our ancient texts, our ancient traditions from our politics, the less we cannot go forward in implementing our uh, goals as a nation. So, so here's a problem that... I... And I'm saying that without a kippah on my head. It's very important to mention. You want our listeners to know that you're without a kippah? Yeah. Is it in your pocket? I have a kippah shkufa on my head. Uh, what does that mean? Our listeners understand English. Kippah shkufa, it's like a... Invisible like kippah. A invisible kippah. That's important because not everybody... Yeah. Not everybody understands Hebrew who's listening to the show. And it's also important just which just to show that it's not necessarily about your own individual level of observance, this idea that you have to bring in our ancient texts and traditions and emunah into these conversations. It's not bound by how personally quote unquote religious a person is, it's it's much deeper than that. This conversation is much deeper than that. Or, 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 or it can and should be, like, meaning like I always make the argument, especially when uh, Palestinian groups bring uh, tourists to my house. Um, I say that I share an identity with figures like Bezalel Smotrich, uh, but we have different politics. Okay? I think it's important to distinguish identity from politics. My identity is like his, my understanding of Jewish history, my understanding of our connection to the land, my understanding of the meaning of us coming back here, my understanding of, of Torah, my interpretation of Torah is probably very similar to his, but our political conclusions are radically different. Uh, and I think we can also maybe add a third leg to that, which is just ritual observance. Say, you know, you might have the identity of a Jew like me, but we might differ on ritual observance. Like I might wake up early in the morning to do shachrit and uh, bekat kornim, and uh, uh, and you might not. Uh, but that doesn't mean we're we're coming with two different identities. We have uh, different roles in the big uh, on this big map, and um, this is where you know this is. Um, this is, what, this is what is the problem with the, the right wing also in Israel, like, you know, Yehuda, the forces of Yehuda, as you uh, mentioned in your article. They, who are supposed to carry the implementation of our goals as people, mm -hmm. they cannot do it while being sectarian. They cannot do it without opening up and including and embedding also the left and also the center. They cannot. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, first of all, what I think makes Yehuda different from Levi, for example, because I think Yehuda and Levi... How you will define Smotrich, Levi or Shimon or Yehuda? I don't know about Smotrich personally. I think he might bounce around there. Ben Gvir is Shimon. Yeah, Ben, ben, yeah, ben, ben Gvir Shimon, I think uh, Maoz is Levi. I, I think Levi is the more 
what we call more sophisticated, more intellectual forms of what some might call Jewish fundamentalism. Who, who can you identify as Yehuda? Rav Sherky. Maybe. But I would say that um, what makes Yehuda different from Levi is not necessarily a different hashkafa, but the ability to see the value in all the other tribes. Like meaning... Or the role of the other right. tribes. Like whereas maybe people from Levi believe, even if they say differently, you, you sense a belief, that everybody needs to become like Levi. Right? Like everybody needs to become more like Levi to be correct. Whereas Yuda might say, wait a minute, there's a value to Dan. We need Dan. Right? It's hard to say because who are Dan? Dan are the Jews in BDS. Dan are the Israelis who vote for Palestinian parties on election day. So you need a deep understanding, a deep understanding of who we are, what our mission is, Emunah, to be able to look at Dan and say, no, 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 they have a value and we can't do this without them. To look at Yosef and say they have a value and even though they might have already fulfilled this Herculean task of bringing us home and building a state, we still need them. They're not done. Um, maybe they shouldn't be leading us, maybe they shouldn't be, have a monopoly on power and, and wealth and resources in the country, but they belong in the car. Even if they're not going to be the only ones with the steering wheel in their hand, they belong in the car. And I think that Yuda has that ability. That's what makes Yuda Yuda. It's a broader perspective, a higher perspective that sees the value in all the different components of Israel and not just in those who agree with them. And nowadays I think you also mentioned a word, a mission statement as a goal, as, as a people. Mm -hmm. What is our goal as a people? We have lack of clarity of where we need to go. We are having no leadership, we have technicians and managers, but we don't have the right manpower on top to really take us to the next level. So my question is to you, what is the goals of our people? And I think it's super important to define them or to find a way to define them, to phrase them in a way that is also practical because it can, we cannot play this game anymore of managing the status quo as we did in the last 20 years. We cannot. At least nowadays, regarding the issue with the Palestinians, we know what not to do, which is a great lesson of how to do things the other way around. A great lesson of what not to do. A great, uh, what not to do is a great lesson to what can, what can be done, right. what should be done. So I would say the goal is tikkun olam, right? Uh, correcting the world, perfecting the world, uh, bringing history to a state of perfection. And I, and I don't think it's a, it's a hard stop. I think there, you know, once we reach certain layers of this goal, it'll <clears throat> kind of continue to advance and advance and advance. But I would say that the way for us to achieve this goal, Tikkun Olam, and bringing all of the creation uh, to the awareness that we're part of one organic whole and that we're all really interconnected, we're all sum of one. We're all included in uh, this timeless ultimate reality that we call Yudke Vavke, mm -hmm. um, Hashem, uh, that uh, creates all and sustains all and empowers all and loves all, so the source of all, includes the all and is beyond the all, that we're all part of that, and that it's completely unnatural for us to be fighting with one another, uh, to be hurting one another, to be trying to benefit at the expense of one another, to be exploiting one another, um, and not just one another in terms of other peoples or human beings, but also the natural world also the animal kingdom, also the earth, 
like meaning to understand that we are we're not in conflict or competition with each other and we're not in conflict or competition with the earth and i think capitalist society has conditioned humans to think of themselves as constantly being in competition with everyone and everything around them that they need to dominate and so I, I think one of the practical goals, you wanted a practical goal, I think that Israel really did come back to life to lead humanity into a post-capitalist world. And the way to do that is by modeling something different. And I think that model needs to be the expression of the divine ideal in every sphere of national life. We need to show the world new types of social organizations, uh, new types of economies, new types of, of ways to treat the other in a society when you're the dominant uh, group. Uh, and I think that right now, Israeli society, almost all the tribes of Israeli society are very influenced and affected by Western civilization in that the conversations we're constantly having politically or socially are whether we're going to accept or reject the political frameworks and models of the West. And instead of us arguing over whether we're going to accept or reject the models and the paradigms of the West, we need to be creating our own. And that could compete with those personally, of the West on their own ideological turf. Personally, I would argue that it's actually really hard to talk about practical goals when we don't actually have a good methodology yet <laughs> in set in place for achieving those goals. Mm. Meaning part of what actually needs to happen is we genuinely need a new national conversation about the kind of nation that we really want to be. And like you said, building structures that suit who we are. And part of this is like, let's say adopting the tribal political map as a new way of understanding ourselves, maybe rediscussing how we want to organize our leadership, how we want to organize our economy, according to principles in our own culture that actually fit the society that we're trying to build. So it's very hard to imagine like what the next practical goals uh, that we're trying to achieve are when we don't have the right tools to even achieve any goals. We're just basically managing the status quo as long as we continue to use these tools that are foreign to us. But I would argue that the biggest goal that we're actually trying to achieve is essentially imparting values, deep Jewish values, but they're, they're universal values, meaning the Jewish values that we've gotten are universal values. It's just a matter of how we're going to spread that across the world in a way that is just, is fair, is inspiring, and brings people closer to their actual purpose in creation. That's our like long-term goal. Now, how we get there is like what I said before, we need to have a discussion, a reevaluation of the methods we're going to use in order to achieve that goal. I, I want to try and simplify things. Okay. To make an effort or make an uh, attempt to simplify things. I think that the only Jewish model for state is in the Kingdom of Israel. I mean, there was none other form of governance. Well, what does that mean though? Exactly. That's what we need to define. That's what we need to translate for our days. Things that were ancient from thousands of years ago that are written in our Torah. The Torah, you know, by the way, as long as I work with Palestinians, I saw the Torah not only as our, uh, you know, Kushan, you know, our, our bill of rights over the land. I saw it as a political vision. I saw it as something political. And this is another thing that I respect about Muslims. They do not separate their Quran and their 1,400-year-old tradition from the present and the future. And we doing exactly the opposite. We put these ideals on the closet. 
Right. They are being in the closet and separation of church and separation state. of church and exactly. well, that, that's part of our colonization, exactly. uh, especially the colonization of Ashkenazim, who then Nahon. reimpose that onto other Jews. Nahon, no, very, very true. So I want to suggest that we need to make Israel a more Jewish and democratic state by embedding values from the Kingdom of Israel mm -hmm. that also have a lot of values how to treat the non-Jew, the gay, within our system. But we're not going to give up our power. So when, you know, when you something what you what you said that uh, resonates with me a lot. One time that you had a conversation with a Palestinian in front of a camera. I don't like to do that generally. I, I don't think it creates the right conditions for a productive conversation. But still, it, for me, it raised a very big insight because you said something. The camera could be a problem. Maybe, maybe. But you know that's how it works. Right, right. You know, well, that's how we spread information and, and right. awareness. He said something very important. He said that for us to stop the military rule over Palestinians, we need to get away from taking the paradigms of the West. And in that way, while we're not going to give up our power, there's going to be a system of justice here for them and to us. I'm not saying exactly in the same words, but this is, and I think you're very right about this. And once we're going to embed ancient traditions and ancient texts, ancient guidelines that we already have written down for thousands of years and adopt them in a way that fits to our time in a unique way that can look at the big picture. This is uh, what uh, we are thirsty for, in my opinion. And the end game of the Jewish people of Zionism also, we also need to redefine Zionism, but the end game of our goals as people, it's to make Jerusalem, the city we sit right now, as a political and religious center for the whole world. I would say, maybe not religious center, but spiritual center for the world. Spiritual, yeah. We can use different terminology, but you know, this is also another thing, very important, that we need to redefine Zionism, because Zionism today is very narrow. It only completed two goals of our people, the gathering of the exiles and re recreating our sovereignty here. And the Hebrew language. And the in-gathering is still loading. Right, right. But, but I, I don't but, know if we want to go down this road, because if we if we start getting into a conversation over redefining Zionism, that's going to be very... I agree. It, it'll be a tension where we end up arguing over whether or not that's... I'm just saying. Right. I'm not against this definition, obviously. Mm -hmm. I'm just against the dot after uh, the recreation of the state of Israel and the gathering of the exile, period. So I'm against the period, because well, there are more aspirations to fill. Well, back to what we were saying before about like, you know, ancient Jewish structures of, let's say, organizing leadership on a political level. You know, I took a class on Jewish history and it was talking about how after, you know, the Bet Hamidash was destroyed, the second Bet Hamidash was destroyed, um, how the Sanhedrin basically reorganized the political structure of Israel. And there were certain conditions that a city had to meet. And part of that was, you know, weekly donation collections every single Shabbat and a doctor and a, and a school. And there were certain conditions that a collection of houses or township needed to meet in order to be considered a city. So that's just a practical example of how we as a people used to define and recognize localities as this is a city. So, and there's plenty of different, more complex examples of how these types of things were organized. But just to 
give like a practical example of what we're talking about here of looking into our tradition, our methods of organization, and then trying to adapt that for the modern day country that we live in. There are practical examples of how to do that, but I, you know, it's hard to get into the nitty gritty of it all when we're still basically trying to agree on the fact that that's the direction you need to go in, in general. I, I want to just point out that when you talk about Malchut Israel, the kingdom of Israel, it's likely that a lot of listeners hear that as some kind of well, something very uh, oppressive, oppressive or backwards. Well, or... I want to be more specific. I, I think it sounds like uh, like a feudalist monarchy because that's when we think of kingdom, we really think of feudalism as a means of organizing society. There's a certain hierarchy, structure, inequalities, authoritarian rule, and when we talk about Malchut Yisrael, I don't think, at least for me, that that's not what I'm envisioning. I think when we talk about a kingdom of Israel, we're talking about um, we're talking about a civilization that manifests and expresses the divine ideal in every sphere of human behavior. Um, the Melech himself, you know, which can be translated into English as king, is not an authoritarian ruler. He is a figurehead who has very specific responsibilities. Uh, one of them is to lead us in war. One of them is to conduct diplomacy. One is to serve as an example to the people, as like a, as like a role model to the people. Uh, one is to, let's say, bridge the gap between the ideal and our current reality. Uh, but we're not talking about an all-powerful ruler. We're still talking about having democratic systems in place where people are empowered to influence the structures they live under, where there are different voices and checks and balances in our society. But the goal is to create the type of society and the term in our culture, when we talk about it, is Malchut Israel, the kingdom of Israel. But what that really means is to create this orlegoim, to create this civilization, this, but again, this framework is- that will actually communicate something to the world, that will actually show the world, model for the world, something new, something different, something that hasn't existed before, and something that is obviously better. But in this point, it goes again to something I said before, we cannot, I mean, with all these things, I agree with you, but we cannot do that without the Palestinians in, this way or the other. And when we engage with them, my experience engaging with them is that they remind me something ancient from my tradition, in a way. Their steadfast to their land, their connection from their ancient traditions, even the Quran, to our time, their respect that they give to their own prophet, which are things that I don't see enough among our people. Well, some of us do that, but what you're basically saying, what, what you're basically saying is that you're learning from the Palestinians a little bit about what Israel should be. Like you look at them, and, and this is a completely different attitude to Israel's ruling class, our media, because even a lot of the rhetoric surrounding this war that we're currently in has been this framing of we, Israel, is on the side of civilization, meaning the Western world, and they are the savages. And you're saying generally when you your interaction over the years with Palestinians has been one where you look at them and say, these are things that are actually that I can learn from and I to be more me yes to, to be that, that, what Israel is supposed to be that returns me mm-hmm. for what mm-hmm. what connects with the, the stories from the Torah mm-hmm. so so that's important because just like when we talk about the tribes of Israel 
and understanding the identities within the Jewish world and the, like, uh, the socio-political differences between different types of Jews through this tribal political map, the, the same can be said for uh, certain other identities as well. For sure. You know, even though they are the enemies right now, and we need to fight and win, and if we need to kill, we kill. But, you know, at the end of the day, like I said before, they are like a metaphorical stick in the hand of Hashem to bring us back to our source. And there's a reason why they stayed here, and there's a reason why we came back. And now when I engage with Muslims, and we always gain... We always uh, talk in the language of emuna, of uh, faith, of spirituality. Faith is a bad translation. Yeah, we always speak in the language of emuna. Mm -hmm. Maybe the emuna is a good word. Will, will, will understand. And when I say to them, "Look, I believe that everything is from Allah. You also should believe that everything is from Allah, right? You guys stayed here. Who is it from?" They said, "It's from Allah." I say, "That's true." And we came back here. Who is it from? They cannot say it's not from Allah. They cannot. Now, if they explain it in a way that we came back here in order for us, for them to kill us, then I say, all right, we're going to kill you first. If that's what needs to be, that's what needs to be. But there's a reason why you stay and why we came back. And part of my book, major part of my book, is a conversation, a dialogue between Hamas member that I actually met in Bethlehem a couple of years ago. And it's a dialogue between like the Jewish deep perspective and the Muslim deep perspective. And what I see there, what I depict there, is that the more they antagonize our story, the more they are denying our story. In a way, they also deny their own story. Why? Because their own prophet commanded them to believe in all the prophets before him. So if they are erasing a major story of the Islam, depicted in the stories of the prophets which they are supposed to believe in and they say we believe in all the prophets but when you ask them what do these prophets say what was their message they don't know and i think it's a very important very relevant conversation for the future because i believe that once they will add our story the story of the emunah of the nevi'im of the melachim of david amelech who was a righteous king also in their Quran, to their own story, then we will stop to see the other the way that the other doesn't see himself. Because right now, Ishmael doesn't see Yitzchak the way Yitzchak sees himself. And vice versa. Meaning the Torah is nivuah, the Torah is prophecy. And it's not just telling us history or about different characters, but a lot of the characters we're introduced to in the Torah represent uh, forces on the back end of creation, like the code behind a website that shine into this world in multiple generations in different forms. And when the Torah speaks about Ishmael, it's speaking about the Islamic world, right? Like today, the Islamic world is the force that the Torah calls Ishmael. Just like when the Torah talks about Esav, it's talking about Western civilization. Even though Western civilization today is not necessarily biologically from Esav, Meaning a lot of them are from Yefet, they're not even from Shem, right? Esav is from Shem. But we still, when we learn about Esav, we're learning about Western civilization. Now, the Palestinians is a question. When we, when we talk about Palestinians, are we talking about Ishmael? Or are we talking about Peleshet? I think it's important to make the distinction, because you made the point earlier that we're dialoguing with Ishmael, with the Muslim world, 
through the Palestinians. Like the Palestinians are, are the, the, the vessel through which we are having a conversation with Islam. And, and why? Because they're the ones who are here. Right? For the, not all Palestinians for are Muslims. For the first time in history, it's very important to mention, we're not dialoguing with the world of Islam from inferior... From underneath them. From underneath them. Right. We're not. It's we're, very important to mention. Right. It is the first time in history that's true. Yeah, the first time in history that we are coming from a place of power and having a conversation with the Islamic group, or, or we're not yet. I mean, you are, and, and we try to as well, but the nation of Israel has the ability for the first time in history to have a real conversation with the Islamic world from a place of power. We haven't had, as a nation, as a collective, we haven't had that conversation yet because our leadership isn't having that conversation and might not want to have that conversation Maybe you yet. Can't have, don't have the tools right. to have this but, but, but that's what we're creating here. That's what your book is about. That's what a lot of the work of the Vision Movement is about. That's what a lot of your piece work and our piece work has been about over the years. And I call it also, another, there's another important thing. During 1,400 years, Islam always was in a natural situation that they are on top and we are on the bottom. And that was natural for them. So they, they didn't have to deal with questions that arise when there is Jewish rule. Mm -hmm. How do they function within a Jewish rule? On the other hand, we didn't have sovereignty for more than 2,000 years. And more than that, we didn't have sovereignty when there was Islam. So we don't also provide, we didn't yet provide answers how to deal with Muslims under our rule. Mm -hmm. So that's two questions, two conversations that need to be addressed and we haven't done right. this political conversation yet. Mm -hmm. So when the Torah talks about the Philistines, this is the understanding brought by the Gaon of Vilna. So the Gaon of Vilna teaches in his commentary in Habakkuk that the Philistines, Peleshet, only exists at certain moments in history. When Israel comes to take possession of our land, the Philistines suddenly exist with the purpose of pushing back against our sovereignty to force us to figure out our own identity. And once we figure out our own identity, they, they, they seem disappear. to vanish. So the Gona Vilna points out that this was the situation this, this in the time of the Avot and the time of the Shoftim, um, but says also when we come back to our land in the future, right? The Gona Vilna, the Gra lived a couple hundred years ago. He says when we come back to our land in the future, the Philistines will suddenly come back to life. They'll, they'll come from out of nowhere. Like there weren't Philistines yesterday, now there's right. Philistines. And like they'll be before put, that they weren't identified as Palestinian, they identified as, as Arabs. Right, the identity suddenly crystallized uh, in reaction to Zionism, which the Gra also, by the way, the, the two things that we can learn from the Vilna, I mean, there's many things we can learn from the Gona Vilna, but the two things that are most relevant to our conversation is what is Zionism and what are the Palestinians. I think those are the two major contributions I think the, the Vilna Gona is making to this conversation. But when he, But he says in the future, the Palestinians, the Philistines, will come back to life and push back against their sovereignty and force us to figure out who we are. So that really fits very well with what you said about this idea of you're learning how to be yourself from them, not just the opposition, not just the friction, because the friction is true. If there weren't Palestinians here, I don't know what the state of Israel would look like today. We might look like some some like counterfeit Norway if yeah, like there were right <laughs> like if, if there were no uh, Palestinians here. But because but because the Palestinians are here, we haven't been able to turn Israel. Like I saw the Yeshatit party posted something on Instagram before the war started, back when we were still fighting over judicial reform and everything. Yeshatit posted, do we want Israel to be like Sweden or Lebanon? Yeah. Meaning they want to bring us to Sweden and the government wants to bring us to Lebanon. 
So we can't be Sweden, and we probably won't be Lebanon either. But but you're saying, in addition to the the point that I'm hearing that I think is very important for for us to internalize and really think about, is in addition to Palestinians having that function in terms of the conflict, in terms of their fight against us, preventing us from becoming like a quote unquote normal Western nation. They're also things we can learn about ourselves and our true through identity our with them. or through our friendly interaction even even through trying to overcome the friction and having good relations we can learn more to be ourselves because there are certain features of our identity that we lost in exile but they preserved and i find a way to be really deep in my identity and be friends with them and see them as partners a part of my story or our story without canceling them or us. And I think another thing here is that once, look, the Palestinian identity, the national and religious one, is very much embedded with denying or negating our story. Mm -hmm. And once there's gonna be any solution here, doesn't matter what solution, I do not believe in the two states, but even in the two state solution, there's gonna be Let's say peace or real peace. There won't be. There won't be. The Palestinian <laughs> identity. No, no, no. The, the, the two-state solution will not bring us peace. For sure. That's for sure. But any any peaceful solution that will demand from Palestinians to give up on their struggle against us, that's gonna cause them a major identity crisis, and they know that within. Because what is a Palestinian identity? without resistance to Israel. It's true, their shared, the shared experience that really, like you said before, helped crystallize the Palestinian identity into a Palestinian identity. Before there was Zionism, there were Arabs from Hebron and Arabs from Yaffa and Arabs from Haifa. And, you know, that was how they used to define themselves. But what crystallized their experience into the Palestinian experience, even if that term was thrown around here and there, was really this shared experience. And I want to, in a way, force them to this identity. No, but, but I, by, I want to disagree by... with Lizzie before you say that. Okay. No, no, no because I think I, I think it's a little. First of all, we're three Jews having a conversation about Palestinian identity. But I, I also want to make clear that we all have layers of identity. Like I have layers of identity. I'm a Kohen. I'm what people call a Jew. I'm an Israeli. You know, I'm a part of my family. You know, we, we all have layers of identity. There was a Palestinian identity that was unique prior to Zionism you know, custodians of the holy places and, and things of that nature that was like important to Palestinian identity. But overall, you're right, it wasn't the prominent layer of identity. Right, I'm not disagreeing with yeah. that. All I'm saying is this, what actually crystallized it, there was, like you were Into saying- Into like a main identity. Yes, like what was, there was layers of identity. Yes. A, yeah. There was layers of identity mm -hmm. always, and there was a sense of belonging to this part of the earth, and no one's denying that. Right. But what really, you know, what made solidified it, right, it. What helped it to, in a sense, become at least as important as clan identity or the city identity to be like Nablusi or uh, from Al-Quds or from Al-Khalil, like meaning what, what made Palestinian identity a thing that united all that was this shared feeling of victimization by Zionism. Yes. 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 And I think that we need to force them in a way, I do the quotes in, in, with my fingers. We need to force them into being part of our system that in a way that will grant them equal rights and obligations within a Jewish righteous system. And in that way, I want to force them to have this identity crisis that I think it's super necessary. It might sound very, very tough, but that's the truth. And I say it not because I hate Palestinians, 
I am the, the last one that people can say about me that I hate Palestinians. Because I see them as part of my life. By the way, with a lot of conversations with Palestinians that I don't know from the get-go, when I say that this is my land, they're like, well, what, what, you're stealing my identity. I'm not, I'm, I'm like, no, dude, this is all of them from the river. This is, this is my land, but this is also your land. It's not only your land. And in the end of the day, this land belongs to him, not even to us. So there is something that is unfortunately very prevalent among both peoples. I think for a lot of Jews who are connected to our story to accept a Palestinian ally, he has to deny the Palestinian story to a certain extent. And we see for a lot of Palestinians, uh, it's even probably more common uh, among Palestinians because they're uh, in conversation with so many Jews who do deny or just never knew their own national story that, you know, in many cases, it feels like Palestinians or pro-Palestinian spaces, in order to engage with a Jew, that Jew has to already make clear they're denying their own story. And it's counterproductive, I think, on many levels when both of us do it. Uh, but I think that uh, one of the things, you know, that I, I, I know we probably both have experienced in the course of our work with Palestinians is that one of the things that needs to be transcended is this demand or this assumption on the part of the Palestinians that a Jew who's coming with their real identity, their real connection to the land, their real like belief in the Jewish story, cancel themselves. Right, is, is not going to make space for me. Right. And uh, because this is what we need to redefine, right. you know, in our interaction, we don't need to cancel ourselves, or they need to cancel themselves. We need to cancel the cancellation. Mm -hmm. We need to cancel the story from our side that deny their connection to the entire land. And they need to cancel the cancellation of our story and the story that's supposed to be part of their story of this land. You know, the kingdoms of Israel, the Torah, the Nevi'im, you know, so they, once they will recognize us as indigenous people that come back to our land and with a vision that can uplift the status of both sides, which is what I, where I see the status of Jerusalem rising for all the nations, that's a powerful symbol that we need to embed in politics as an end game in the victory for both sides. One of the reasons I think it would be such a Kiddush Hashem if we could manage to solve this situation that we have with the Palestinians in, in the way that you know we're all speaking about now versus just having like a violent war to determine who gets the land is because I don't think a conflict in history that's been this deep, that's been going on for as long as it has been, has ever been solved through like actually a peaceful resolution where both parties end up coming out of the dust happy. So I, I definitely think that there's the potential to really elevate both of us to the status of like absolute greatness if we can manage to find a way to please both parties in this situation. And it's kind of connect with the political tribal map, like you said, you know, the that each and every tribe have their own unique role in the story. That's the same thing with us and them. But in the end of the day, it's a bigger picture that it's of Hashem. Did you see the video we put out on Israel and the Muslim world? Uh, no, I, I don't see much of the okay. social media recently. I just uh, okay. my book. So I could, I could send it to you. The one question I'd like to ask you before we wrap up. The Muslim world is not monolithic. No. I think there are three major forces in the Islamic world right now, at least in this part of the world. The Shiites, that's Iran, Hezbollah, certain forces in Yemen, right? what's called the Houthim in the media, 
Then there's what's called like the radical Sunnis, Muslim Brotherhood, Qatar, maybe Turkey, uh, Hamas, right? And then you have what's like the kind of moderate Sunnis, Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, Jordan, etc. If you were to target only one of these camps. Definitely the radical ones. The, the radical Shiites or the radical Sunnis? The radical Sunnis. The radical Sunnis. So well, that's the target audience. When we're talking to the Muslim world, you're saying that the, I think I agree with you, but when, you, when we're talking to the Islamic world, you're saying the target of our message needs to be not the... Not the moderate Muslims, not the, those who are, you know, the corrupted ones. But, but the radical, the, the radical, the radical ones Sunnis. That really live like Muslim Brotherhood. Like, like we should be looking at the Muslim Brotherhood as a potential partner. I don't know potential partner, but uh, to have this dialogue with people that are identifying with with some of their values. Because, and it's another thing that we need to speak in the next time, the moment that they speak with us in mm -hmm. public, mm -hmm. people from the Muslim Brotherhood, not to mention Hamas, they cancel themselves. Because well, the moment that they speak with us and recognize our existence, have you ever seen a Palestinian representative of Hamas speaking directly with an Israeli Jew? No. No. That's what. And... Or vice versa. Meaning there, there's a problem here. And the problem is that we are coming from a perspective, like we are leaders, talk about the need for de-radicalization. Right? Meaning the idea in the minds of the Israeli policymakers right now is for us to have a good relationship with the Muslim world. We need to de-radicalize them, meaning we need to turn the Hamas type, Muslim Brotherhood type into a Saudi type to improve him. But the argument I think we should be making is we don't need to de-radicalize anybody. We just need to change the role Israel plays in their story. And this we, what we should do in the next conversation was uh, very, very good. Okay, Yinon, thank you so much for joining us. I would uh, love to do it again. And we have so much to talk in Amen, amen. And listeners, if you want to check out the show notes to this episode, you can go to visionmag.org backslash the next stage 116. And uh, once again, I'd like to thank our supporters over at Patreon. You can join them by going to patreon.com slash vision movement and joining us at whatever tier you feel most comfortable and if you're not in a position to support the show financially right now you can help us by giving us a great uh, five-star review it really helps us with the algorithm reaching more people with ideas and with views like what you heard at this podcast today shalom Yalla.